The City in the Autumn Stars Being a continuation of the story of the Von Beck family and its association with Lucifer, Prince of Darkness, and the cure for the world's pain. The Second Chronicle, in which is recorded a confession of Manfred Von Beck, sometime Captain of Cavalry in Washington's Revolutionary Forces, Deputy of the French Commune, also former Secretary to the Saxon Embassy at the court of the Empress Catherine of Russia, and Confession, chiefly relating to certain strange events in the city of Muhrenberg during the winter months of the year 1794. As edited, translated and prepared for the press by Michael Moorcock. For David Hartwell with respect and affection. The direction of this new force, liberated by the love, vanity and inspiration of a sharp little shop assistant, was through the spirit of the times to a personal power that both were content to wish as large as possible, without as any limitation or detailed idea. The spirit, since it was the age of reason, was love of mystery. For it cannot be disguised that the prime effect of knowledge of the universe in which we are shipwrecked is a feeling of despair and disgust, often developing into an energetic desire to escape reality altogether. The age of Voltaire is also the age of fairy tales, the vast cabinet de fay, some volumes of which Marie Antoinette took into her cell to console her, it is said, stood alongside the encyclopedia. This impression of disgust and this impulse to escape were naturally very strong in the 18th century, which had come to a singularly lucid view of the truth of the laws that govern our existence, the nature of mankind, its passions and instincts, its societies, customs and possibilities, its scope and cosmical setting, and the probable length and breadth of its destinies. This escape, since from truth can only be into illusion. The sublime comfort and refuge of that pragmatic fiction we have already praised. There is the usual human poverty of all its possible varieties. There are all the drugs, from subtle, all-conquering opium to cheating, cozening cocaine. There's religion, of course, and music and gambling. These are the major euphorias. But the queerest and oldest is the side path of magic. At its deepest, this magic is concerned with the creative powers of the will. At lowest, it is but a barbarous rationalism. The first of all our attempts to force the heavens to be reasonable. 
William Belitho, Cagliostro, and Serafina. Twelve Against the Gods, 1929. Preface This account, first published in Heidelberg in about 1840, was printed and written anonymously. Only recently, through the records of the Vernon family, has the authorship been traced to Manfred von Beck, who was born in Beck in 1755 and died in Marienburg in 1824. Having in his youth been involved in a number of scandals and dubious adventures throughout Russia, Asia Minor, America and most of Europe. The narrative, mentioned in passing in Carlyle's German Romance, 1824, does not seem to have had much public distribution, and today's Count von Beck, to whom I am indebted for much more help than is evident here, points out that his ancestor issued instructions for it to be printed only after his death. This accords with the references in the text. The account is in the nature of a confession, and if readers' fiction might well qualify as a romance, though it does bear resemblances both to the classic picaresque and to the gothic novels then fashionable. The Grail itself, of course, has been part of the family's coat of arms for over 300 years, and their name is inextricably bound up with the German versions of the myth. There is, for instance, a legend, mentioned in many sources, that the von Beck family is fated to keep and protect the Grail, and seek it out if it ever becomes lost. Manfred von Beck's reputation as a young man he was frowned upon by many, might suggest the story was a hoax, either written by himself or someone who had known him well. The reader must judge that. However, before making a final assessment, it might be worth consulting the records of the present count, which have not yet been made available to the public, either in Germany or elsewhere. These records are currently in preparation. This somewhat modernised version of Manfred von Beck's Confession is adapted from an English edition published in London by D. Omer Smith of St. Paul's Churchyard, 1856, revised and expanded by Michael Moorcock, who acknowledges, as always, his enormous debt to Prince Lobkowitz, and, of course, to the Von Beck family itself, which has entrusted him with many documents covering the last four centuries of its history. The Publishers Chapter 1 In which I take my leave of Paris, romance, and the radical cause. Were it not for that terror which captured France in 1793 and which at length caused me to flee Paris, 
I might never have discovered an exquisite love, nor ventured to the city in the autumn stars where, with wits, sword, and the remnants of faith, I fought again for the world's future and lost my own. The day Tom Paine was jailed on Robespierre's specific order, I determined at last to put my revolutionary ideals behind me. Even as I pleasured sweet Madame F., whose bad news was incidental to her visit, I planned my impending flight. Tom imprisoned meant I had lost my final ally in the assembly. My own name would now inevitably appear on a warrant issued by the Committee of Public Safety. Indeed, a boisterous mob of enragés could already be on its way to my lodgings with the intention of offering me its familiar choice. Tumbrel to the guillotine, or rotten hulk to the sane's bottom. Well, clearly it would be prudent for me to spend the new year of 94 abroad. As soon as was seemly, I dressed in the disguise held ready for that moment, packed all I owned into two leather saddlebags, made hasty courtesies to my mistress, and hurried through Paris's dawn alleys to the certain mews in the Rue de la Ancienne Comédie. There, for two francs, I redeemed my feckless manservant's nag from a sleepy ostler. More silver got me a saddle and harness, which had seen far better days, and this I settled on the poor beast as she shivered and fumed in the stable yard's chill. I fancied I now looked the image of some medium-rank revolutionary officer. My customary silks and lace were abandoned or hidden. I was engulfed in an old black coaching cloak, while the crushed Kevin Kula bicorn rested on my uncombed hair. To this I had added a coarse muffler of greyish wool, greasy, dun-coloured breeches, cheaply finished jack leather boots, and I had pinned a tricolour cockade to my hat. An antique cavalry scabbard sheathed my own good samarca and sabre, and this was tucked into a blue, white, and red sash of doubtful cleanliness. I must surely pass as the typical servant of the committee, and I intended to claim that identity if anyone stopped and questioned me. Should disguise and argument fail to persuade my suspicious zealot, then I would resort to two large Georgian flintlocks settled in my greatcoat's gun pockets. I could not help but despair the progress of my career and the collapse of our political dreams. In the previous year, France had executed her king and proclaimed a true republic. But now the mob's passing whim had discovered the only law, as Robespierre himself would soon discover. I felt cruelly betrayed by the revolution by men I had embraced as brothers, by circumstance, and, as always, 
by God. Being no admirer of despotism or privilege, I had first celebrated and then served the revolution, becoming at last a deputy in the parliamentary assembly. When, however, the bloodletting grew unjust and excessive, I, like pain, lifted my voice against the nightmare of a hypocrisy and falsehood, that degenerate orgy of revenge and animal savagery. But, like pain, I was a foreigner, and next encountered sudden antagonism from the very comrades whose own rights and liberty I had lately championed. They claimed the mob performed identical crimes as the aristocrats, yet not so prettily disguised. To me, this justified nothing. Their argument was in itself illustrative of their impoverished and perverted souls. Such was the substance of my statements to my fellow deputies when my doubts grew to a new kind of certainty after I witnessed their September days. Those days when the beast in all its horrid barbarity stalked our streets wearing Liberty's cap and wiping his bloody chops on Liberty's flag. The first I saw of it was beneath a brilliant late summer sky when six coaches full of captured priests were set upon in the Rue Dauphine. The rabble sliced off hands stretching from windows in search of mercy, then hacked the occupants to pieces. The same day, a Carmelite convent near Rue de Volgerard was likewise attacked its inhabitants murdered and thrown into a well. Prisons were invaded and their defenceless charges slaughtered. The murder of innocents continued. Drunken some temperists dragged young and old, mad and sane, into the jail's courtyards and impaled them on pikes. Were not stabbing prisoners to death in their very cells where they awaited trial, those frightful savages split their victim's head with hatchets. I grew used to seeing heaps of horrid mutilated corpses. Other bodies were displayed in the street for public amusement. Crones dragged to the pavements, the still limp cadavers of young boys jerking these lifeless partners in a further parody of human illusion, the figures of a hideous erotic dance. At La Petite Force prison, the Princess Le Lambelle was stripped, humiliated before the crowd, then repeatedly raped. Her breasts were cut off, and while she still lived, she was again subjected to indecencies of every description. Her tormentors constantly sponging blood from her skin so the mob should note its aristocratic whiteness. When the lady at last expired, her private organs were amputated, impaled on a spike by the same gallant who ripped out her heart, 
roasted it on the stove of a nearby wine shop and ate it. Everywhere in Paris similar barbarities were practiced, distracting me almost to madness. My wretched brain could not encompass all that horror, the cruel destruction of my idealism. That month alone, 1,500 persons were tortured and killed by wine-swilling rogues and harlots who in coming weeks proudly exhibited swords, spears and axes crusted with innocent blood. <sighs> Even that perhaps I might have ignored had the tribunal voiced its outrage. Instead the mob was praised. Marat and Belode Varen encouraged it. Oh, it performed a public duty in slaying the nation's enemies. By force of will I yet remained in the assembly, passionately arguing a return to our cause's original virtues, but even born Frenchmen were howled down if they offered such pleading. A native of Saxony, I had been invited to join the revolution by Anarchasis Klutz and my Jacobin friends. With Klutz I had renounced lands, title and family loyalty, following him to Paris where we were welcomed as brothers and immediately made citizens. Elsewhere in Europe, of course, my enthusiasm was not so well received, having cried out for the rights of man and shown my wholehearted support of that most violent upheaval in the body politic, there was now every chance, should I travel beyond France's boundaries, I would be immediately arrested. I had so thoroughly committed myself to the revolution that even when I came to understand the evil we had created with our miserably naive philosophies, I continued to deceive myself of Robespierre's humanistic claims. I appealed for the abolition of the death penalty. Let it not punish either the weakest peasant or Marie Antoinette's capet, the queen. Those who had never before known power, I reasoned, were the first to fear the loss of it and suspect all of trying to steal it. Given the moral superiority of our cause, we should not descend to the methods of our predecessors, but must show the world we return to our stated moral purpose. This plea was resisted by the self-same gentlemen who were very soon would impose fresh tyrannies upon the people in the name of the corrupt directorate. Thus my departure was no hasty dash from danger, I saw no joy in martyrdom, nor satisfaction in last speeches from the scaffold. My plan for escape had been exactly drawn. Muranberg was to be my final destination. In that tolerant city, I had money and old friends. There was no 
lovely a city in which to weather out a social storm. Like Venice in her singularity, Mirrenberg, moreover, had an enlightened prince. But to reach her, I would have to cross half the rest of belligerent Europe. I had no other reasonable choice. I was unwelcome in Saxony, wanted for treason in Russia, had bad debts in Vienna, and was branded libertine in Genoa and excommunicated in Rome. Well, as a Protestant born, I was not unduly alarmed by this. And as a known Jacobin, an intimate of Robespierre, I could not expect to enjoy a leisurely and uninterrupted journey. Well, thus I rode with many a wary glance at what I prayed was an unremarkable pace into streets which were now rife with random violence. Ghastly fog gave Paris an appearance of spectral unreality, as if she herself had become a bloodless cadaver, greatest and final victim of the terror. In time, cold morning sunshine dispersed the fog and sharpened the texture of the stones, revealing the filth and verminous rubble which Egalité had left untreated and which Fraternité ignored. I was glad to find the iron gate standing open, my way unchallenged by three drunken national guardsmen who wished me a cheerful bonjour citizen with a hiccup and a yawn. Without pausing, I waved my passport and travelling documents, none fully ordered and some bearing only poor facsimiles of the proper seals, and entered the ill-tended highway with its thin snow and black etioliated trees. As Parisian cobbles gave way to the Dion Road's frost-hardened ruts, I could at last spur to a smarter trot, more in keeping with my heart's rhythm. I had known terror and danger before, most notably when the Empress Catherine exiled me to Siberia from whence I escaped, spending two years with wild Tatars, learning their martial skills and daily forced to prove myself a good savage, as good as themselves. Yet that bloodthirsty democracy was the cruelest sport that ever Christians performed. I had lost all hope for the perfectibility of the world. My time in America, where I served with von Stauden, Lafayette and Wayne had shown me how soon the fire eaters became the fire men. As quick to dampen the spirit of liberty when it threatened their interests as they were to ignite it when it served them best. Since my departure, events in that first great modern republic had proven more melancholy still, with half the leading spirits dead in jail or exiled. I heard they planned to choose a monarch, and General Washington was proposed. 
Were they bent merely upon replacing one King George with another? Well, if so, the tyranny of autocracy would at least be given an honest name. My horse, an old country hunter, sniffed at the air and grew almost lively as we left the city's stink. But I enjoyed only the mildest sense of release. Louis himself had reached the Belgian border before being caught and brought back. And the king, moreover, had the advantage of aid from my acquaintance, the Baron de Corf, Russian ambassador of France, whereas I remained a wanted criminal by the Muscovites on their suspicion of my involvement in a murder plot against Catherine. With every friend in France either dead, emigrated, imprisoned, or too prudent to associated with a suspected royalist, I had begged with pain and a few others that the Queen be exiled rather than beheaded. I had only my own poor wits for an ally. The Parisian fashion for wholesale slaughter was had spread by now to the provinces, so I could not count myself safe from democracy until I had at least a country or two at my back. I had begun to regret my earlier decision to wear beneath homespun and tarred leather my fine shirt, silk breeches and, within my boots, elegant shoes. Born into an age which regarded it as no minor heresy to go about improperly adorned, I was deuced uncomfortable. I had dressed well and presented a good figure throughout the turmoil and shared this quality, if no other, with Robespierre, whose coat was always impeccably cut, even as he lifted a lace wrist to urge on his tide of barefoot arsonists and whores turned into harpies. Paris faded into the mist. My few fragments of illusion faded with her. Rousseau, Voltaire, Descartes, even Paine himself, by now seemed little more than foolish, over-hopeful prattlers, whose notions bore no relation to the world as she really was. All I retained of Rousseau was his warning that blind following of his theories must inevitably lead to the substitution of the tyranny of dictators for a tyranny of kings. Well, Louis had ruled merely by the will of God. Robespierre chose to believe he ruled by the will of the people. This moral conviction allowed him to condone, participate in, and initiate deeds for which no biblical justification existed. Like a good many fierce revolutionaries who failed to influence reality as thoroughly as they had dreamed, he had a knack for calling old pots by new names and proclaiming the result a triumph of the Enlightenment. To abolish God, I thought, was one thing, but to replace him with oneself was quite another. I could only guess at the heresies blasphemies and distortions of nature yet to come. No longer did I see the decline of the Romans 
merely as a result of ancient ignorance. That decline now seemed proof of the lasting desire for slavery. To shape, therefore, my new direction, my discarding of a moral wardrobe gone rotten, I fostered a determination to follow our old Von Beck family motto to do you the devil's work. Handed down from father to son through generations of our people. At last I had the interpretation which in the past had always baffled me. Now I knew it meant I should indulge myself in all those impulses which hitherto I had dismissed as base or ignoble. If Rome must be the model of our modern world, then I would turn from that narrow stoic philosophy which had brought me to my present pass. I had my well-developed taste for fine clothing, and had always enjoyed good food and wine as well as lechery, but to my hedonism I would marry a new loyalty, to my own person alone. Renouncing my quest for justice and human dignity, I would seek instead the comfort of riches. Gold was both a reliable mistress and a tangible friend. Well, a few years in Muirenberg, I reasoned, enjoying her various delights while increasing my fortune by fair means or foul, I would return to my own Saxon estates, purchase my respectability, and retrieve from my father my birthright. I would not go cap in hand to Beck. I would buy her back, enrich her, installing model farms and dwellings so that at least my own people would be happy. Once rich, moreover, I would again travel easily about Europe, for, while in the public eye a poor radical is a dangerous rogue, a rich radical is merely an eccentric gentleman. The loyalty I had given to liberty would now be set to work in the cultivation of mammon. I had a little money with my friend, the Helvetian philosopher, Frederick César de la Harpe of Vaud, whom I had met in St. Petersburg while performing my office as secretary to the Saxon ambassador. Lausanne was therefore my first destination. But to reach that city I must navigate wild mountainous country whose brigands were reputedly so poor they would murder a traveller for the hair on his head. However, even before I began that stage of my journey I must pass through the village of Saint-Croix where there were usually a strong garrison of the National Guard, primed to expect the likes of me. As the miles passed, I found my disguise to have been well chosen. The only close attention it drew was fearful or respectful. I had learned during my sojourn in Muscovy and Tartary that the art of achieving congruity with one's surroundings lies not in dressing exactly as the common man, 
nor yet as a superior's. Tis best to be one who communes between the two. An unimaginative carping civil servant, a scribe, courier, or what have you, all would be in the mould of those for whom the vulgar people go in awe, but which the aristocracy treats as invisible, or as a despised necessity. If one swims towards the middle of the human stream, one may fairly be expected to be carried on a current of preconception and insensible habit. Thus with my inferiors I showed impatience and a condescending self-importance, while to any superior met on the high road, military commander, important provincial communard, and so forth, I saluted with servile cheer and obedient respect, earning their immediate contempt, which was always to my advantage. One never looks closely at that which one neither fears nor admires. So, I crossed France. At inns remote from any town, I was most easily able to wave my sheaf of forgeries and requisition my needs from folk who blushed to hear my accusatory snarls of royalist and who served me their inadequate best with trembling hands. My name was Citizen Didot, and my business, I instructed them, was secret or important enough to impress them without informing them. Should I share a table with a priest, I glared, while a lieutenant would receive my camaraderie and dislike me for it. A captain, it need scarcely need be said, received my cringing admiration. Winter made bad roads worse, and the going was slow, but the seeming absence of pursuit consoled me. Perhaps France was so taken up with her foreign wars and fears of invasion, she showed little concern for one Saxon traitor running for freedom. I now regretted deeply my decision to accept French citizenship during those early euphoric days. Agents of the revolution were in every country, furthering Clute's avowed ambition to take liberty abroad in the form of a conquering French army which would free all from their chains. Clutes himself would soon be guillotined with the other Hibertist radicals. But his logic of international liberation would provide the impetus for an imperial France to embark upon the rape of Europe. <laughs> Thus, one generation's idealist provides useful rhetoric for the next generation's greedy pragmatist. I shall not say that I foresaw the rise of Napoleon while I rode for Switzerland, but my family's reputation for second sight is famous throughout Germany, and my own gloom was enough to impart a certain accuracy to my prophecies. Switzerland drew near. Villages came fewer and lodgings were scarce. Close to Saint-Croix, I found shelter at last in a noxious, 
farming house turned hostelry on a truckle bed, set over boards through which I observed and heard the constant movement of noisy outpourings of three thin cows, my own horse, two dray mares, and a pig, as well as a stable lad with a woman of uncertain age who set upon him halfway through the night and enjoyed him while he groaned and she grunted. Well, it soon became impossible to determine if they retained their duet or if the pig had joined them. The mingled stench of all these beasts became so overwhelming, I believe it was this which at last set me off to sleep. Next morning was blowing cold rain. My innkeeper, picking lice from beneath his belt, guessed the nearby river must surely flood by noon. He suggested I go by another road than that which led directly through St. Croix. I, however, grew steadily troubled at the prospect of another day in France and did not wish to risk suspicion by avoiding the garrison. I told him I would take my chances with the ford. He shrugged. There was heavy ice in it, he said, and if the current ran hard I stood a fair chance of being knocked from my horse. Ignoring him, I signed a paper in the name of the committee, assured him the state would settle as soon as he presented himself with the paper in Paris, and set off. Head down, with the stinging wind which carrying frozen rain, threatened to lacerate both nag and self. The wind increased. The branches of bare elms waved like limbs of drowning starvelings. I searched the sky in hope of an interlude, but the grey clouds raced on to be replaced by others. I shivered in my greatcoat and tried to spur the reluctant beast to greater speed. If her circulation stopped, I feared she would freeze a statue in her tracks. We went by a creaking windmill of ancient black wood and whitewashed stones. The sails complained and shrieked as they slowly turned, though they ground no corn. By about eleven on the clock we passed through Saint-Croix, a pretty little village of stone and slate and carved wood where, to my surprise, the garrison consisted of two or three dozing soldiers. I guess the rest had been called upon other errands and I congratulated myself on my good fortune. I showed my papers and explained how I was on government business, keeping a rendezvous with a Swiss agent of ours. They innocently accepted all I told them and wished me luck in my work. The Swiss border was only a mile or two on the other side of the river. Now, snowy alpine foothills with their evergreens offered a modicum of shelter from the weather until I came at last to my ford. As, for, as foretold, slabs of ice tumbled and clapped rushing in a foaming torrent, all but obscuring the narrow causeway I must cross. With considerable cursing and some hesitation, I urged my poor steed knee-deep into the chilly tide. Water clawed my boots like the fingers of some furious arctic troll. 
and I was halfway across using scabbarded sword to push away larger slabs of ice before I heard a cry from the bank ahead. Peering through spray, rain and mist, I made out a group of mounted men amongst the pines. My attention was distracted long enough for a block of glowing ice to rake against my horse's chest, causing her to whinny and skitter in the water and almost lose her footing on the causeway. Well, hold, gentlemen, I pray you, cried I across the wailing rain. I feared they would begin to cross before I had reached their side and thus risk all their oil lives. I shall soon have reached your bank, and then you can ford. But if you start on my horse or your own, likely none of us will get to our destination. Well, either they heard me and fell silent, or they had no more to communicate. They did, however, seem content to wait for me. My horse remained in her agitated condition, and I was soon obliged to dismount lest we both fall. Though the foam threatened to drown me, I nonetheless plunged into the deeps, then eventually found shallower waters which came only to my breast. With relief, I struggled at last into the calmer waters and stood gasping and quaking beside the muddy, root-knotted bank. I felt sure my breath must freeze in the air or turn solid in my lungs. Both my horse and I were shivering. It was a minute or two before I could give an eye to the dark figures who, seated upon the backs of big horses, regarded me with impassive concentration. They were soldiers by the look of them. Renegades were frequently found between borders when countries disputed by lifting the law against murder and dignifying its commission as a necessity of war. I put my hand to pocket and clasped the damp butt of a barker. The pistol was useless. If these horsemen were indeed thieves, my sword was my only defence. They continued to be patient. Several more minutes went by as they waited for me to catch my breath and straighten my back. I naturally became watchful, yet they tried to seem unwary and not a bit concerned by them, speaking aloud to myself and to them, commenting on the foulness of the weather and the need of a bridge over the river. Still they did not reply. It was only when I made to remount my horse that one of the riders broke away from the rest and advanced down the river bank, keeping his huge horse to a calculated walk. This man had handsome, aquiline features, pale under a broad forehead and thick black brows. His long hair hung in pigtails about his face, and he wore a large bicorn on the back of his head, brim pinned so it would not lose its shape in the rain. From the gullies so formed, water poured upon the shoulders of his leathern cape, wrapping his body to the knees. From the cape protruded a dark sleeve and a white gauntlet gripping reins and pommel. 
His boots too were black, the tops turned over to reveal soft brown inner leather. The rider's thin lips pursed as he drew his horse in before me and looked me up and down. A good morning, citizen, I called with false good cheer. Do you plan to ford here? Tis, as you have seen, just possible. We've already crossed, sir, said the pale one, and proceed towards Nyon. Yourself? Well, on state business, citizen, I gave him my habitual reply. Well, then we share an honour, he said. He appeared to be quietly amused. Meanwhile, as this exchange took place, his men moved forward, positioning their horses so that they formed a barrier across the muddy road. I listened to the pines creaking and dripping. The air was full of their scent, mingled with the lushness of the forest mould, the warm stink of damp horse flesh. Citizen, said I, ignoring all these alarming signs, I thank you for, you, I thank you for your courtesy in waiting to see that I crossed safely. I was reaching the conclusion that I had found St. Comte's garrison. Reins in hand, I trudged up the bank, my nag snorting as she tried to shake her mane free of water. The river crashed and howled behind me, and as I approached him, the pale man dismounted. He came stalking to offer me a hand for my final step up the road. His eyes were black as the devil's and full of that secret amusement either denoting superior intelligence or chronic short-sightedness. Your name, citizen? Well, his tone was friendly enough. Dido, said I, carrying orders from the committee. <laughs> Indeed, then we're comrades. My name is Monsauvier. Now I placed him. We had met thrice before. Once in Metz, during some benighted Clutzian conference designed to bring revolution to Prussia and Belgium. Then, most recently in Paris, when Danton had, argue, had arranged for deputies to question officers of the National Guard. He was famous for his zeal at sniffing out royalists. But our earlier meeting was less likely to recall, for it had not taken place in France. Our earliest meeting had been in Munich, where, before either of us was a declared servant of the people. Both incognito, members of the same secret metaphysical brotherhood, we had been dedicated to scientific inquiry, evolution of man's natural equality rather than to the unpleasant practicalities of turning the world upside down. His name had been the Vicomte Robert de Monsubier then. Mine had been Manfred Reuter von Beck. For all his rather elegant sans-culottism, de Monsubier was as natural a son of the people as myself. 
Blood flowed in his veins, blue as my own, though, like me, he had renounced privilege. Originally a follower of La Clos, he was now under the spell of Clutes and other extreme herborists. To him, Robespierre was a lily-livered conservative, and Marat was a feeble, weak-stomached, revolutionist manquet. I prayed the grime of travel and the stubble of my lower face would offer sufficient disguise. When next my fellow ex-illuminatus addressed me, I changed my voice to a wheedling whine. From where are your orders, citizen? he asked. Uh, from the commune, citizen. I'm commissioned by citizen Herbert himself. This, of course, to impress Monsaubier. You have your documents. He stretched out a gauntleted hand. Silver drops of rain fell on the black leather of his cloak. Citizen, he moved his fingers. I must see your documents. By what authority, said I. By the people, said he, all full of righteous pomp. I held hard to my role. By which of the representatives are your own orders signed, citizen? I believe I must ask to see yours before I can reveal mine. They are secret. Or mine also. We are close to the border. Our enemies surround us on almost every side. Well, you might be a Prussian citizen, for all I know. I could only attempt to carry him in a rush, an attack of my own. What is you, citizen, has the accent? Not I. His reply was calm, still containing amusement. I'm true-born French. But you, citizen, secret orders, have both the voice and the demeanour of a German. I'll not be insulted. Is Lorraine Germany? I'm a loyal Republican, a revolutionist before ever you Aristos pulled off your calfskin boots to play at peasants as you played Arcadians under Louis. Aggression was my only rhetorical weapon. Monsauvier frowned. Why so insulting all of a sudden? Is it fear that makes you snap like an otter in a trap, citizen? Why are you afraid? A finger crooked and his five men dismounted, pulling muskets from their backs and readying them. Whereupon I swung up into my saddle, drove spurs deep into my poor mare's flanks and rode straight through them. The nag's hoofs slipped in the mud, her nostrils blubbered, her mane flew and Muskets shot off in every direction, their musket balls whippling, whistling about us. All missed. Well, pretty soon I had left the road and was galloping over deep leafy moss in the hope of evasion, of crossing into Switzerland without troubling the border guards. Monsaubier's voice was still too close as he yelled to his men to stop reloading and follow me. 
but their confusion had given me a minute's start, and I meant to use the old hunter to my advantage. One thing she was used to was a chase over rough ground. Thus I had the smallest chance of escape, and even should I be cornered I'd be able to choose territory more easily defended. With that in mind I had my sword unscabbarded, though its unique Tartar workmanship would identify me at once to anyone who knew aught of me. Suddenly I was out of the forest and riding uphill between snowdrifts, rocks and brush, blundering into depths which near drowned the horse, breaking through, galloping over virgin rain-spotted tracts of white, while behind came a floundering halloo. Like drunk English huntsmen, always in the saddle, legs sliding, bridles hauling up resistant heads, muskets going off, only Monsorbier himself rode at full gallop after me, his face against his horse's neck, his hair flying and tangling with the stallion's mane, his hat askew, a great pistol in his left hand, the harness in his right, a true rider with a horse to match his skill. Well, my own skill was equal, if not better. My nag, to my misfortune, was not. A pistol sounded in the frozen air, and I heard the ball hiss, saw snow start up and flint shiver immediately ahead. I felt relief that, with his pistol discharged, Monsoubier and I came closer to parity. If he drew far enough ahead of his own men, it would be worth fighting him in the hope of gaining a better horse as my prize. I heard him shout, Von Beck, I know you! This from a yard or two away. Why, well, I wondered how far it was to the border. Stop, traitor, you damned royalist! You'll be tried fair! He was near to pleading with me even offering me terms. He knew as well as I, however, that death was the only consequence of arrest in those days. So on I chased, risking all, driving my poor nag far too quick, hoping for some sign we were on Helvetian soil where Monsorbier would follow only so far. We vaulted a frozen stream, careered through copses, came close to falling on a dozen hidden outcrops. Both mindless of the danger, while I panted and prayed the rush of air would dry my pistols, or that Monsoubier, now half a mile from his nearest soldier, would fall at the next jump, leaving his mount unhurt. Von Beck, you need not die, shouted my thin-lipped hounder of dukes, and off went his second barker with a bang, loud enough to stop my heart, and I'm dimmed if powder didn't singe the sleeve of my miserable greatcoat. Zeus, thought I, it will be the worst end any man ever had to face to meet his maker in a third-hand artois and a dirty neckcloth. Well, this consideration alone was enough to power the heels which rammed the rowels into my poor beast's bleeding flanks, and she was over a hedge so neatly trimmed I would swear it belonged to some Swiss Landsdorf. Though I rest in the fields, 
though the rest of the fields seemed too rich for that notoriously impoverished mountain folk, whose main industry was the export of mercenary soldiers to various courts abroad, especially to Rome. The Pope trusted them to guard him because, like hireling brigands everywhere, their firmest loyalty was to a full purse. Fanatic purpose is a mystery few Swiss can comprehend. They are not, as a rule, subject to fits of idealism. Their lives have been too hard for long centuries so that, rich or poor, their main desire is for a warm hearth and a full belly. Only my friend La Harp ever had any imagination amongst those mountaineers, and his was essentially a practical quality, not much coloured by excess. Next, I was sliding. With ears flat, back legs bent as if to squat, my horse bore us down towards a shallow valley brimming with unbroken snow. Some distance off through the sleet, I detected a single low thatched house from which gusted piney smoke. Another shot made me look up. At the crest of the hill stood Mont-Sauvier, reloading his second thunderer and called after me. Fool! As if somehow I'd betrayed good taste and common sense by evading capture. My mare reached the valley floor, tried to stand in six foot of yielding snow, then keeled over with a groan and lay panting. She looked at the grey sky with unseeing, rolling eyes and enough steam issuing from her to power one of Trevethick's monstrous road engines. I disentangled my foot from the stirrup and peered back at Mont Sorbier, who now waved white and cried, Parlay! But the scarf was not easily visible amidst the general whiteness, so I felt free to assume I had seen nothing and dragged out one of my own pistols. The lock sparked, but the powder in the pan refused ignition, so I lost my best opportunity to rid myself of that troublesome foe. Truce, he yelled. We have something to discuss, brother. He was referring to older loyalties, but I was never much convinced of Illuminati advertisement and was contemptuous of his ploy. Henceforth, the world transforms herself without my help, I called back. Let me go, Monsormier. I'm no traitor, as you of all people must accept. Well, I have read the document of arrest. His breath poured in clouds and I expected to see it in the captions of a political cartoon. He was hoping to keep me fixed until his men arrived, yet argument is one of my greatest temptations. Though I risked death for remaining where I was, I found myself replying. A mere restatement of the original tune, Mont Sauvier. Choose what you wish to believe. My reason for leaving France is that truths become altogether too malleable. I'll not revise my life and experience to accord with theory. Robespierre imposes only his disappointment upon a broken dream, and I refuse to be a victim of his dementia. Shall we guillotine the whole world as if she refuses to accord with your original optimism? 
You leave France in her moment of greatest need, like all the fine-talking fashion plates who thought revolution must come from the passing of a few hours, the changing of a few names. Well, I felt no pang of guilt. I leave, sir, because Robespierre wishes to lay blame everywhere but upon himself and his crazed delusions. Those delusions, sir, would lose me my head. My motive, therefore, is singular. More to the point, I'd essay, than your own. Is this Switzerland, by the way? The borders are league or more to the north. I began inspecting my saddlebags. Now, yeah, well, I'll be on my way then, I think. You have made an enemy of me, Von Beck. An honest enemy is preferable to a perfidious friend, Count Monsolier. Good afternoon to you. I made to revive my horse, but she had died as we talked. Monsolier's dark brows were drawn together in a triumphant frown. I unstrapped my bags, considered the saddle, and chose to leave it, for it was in even worse condition now than when I had brought it at the ostler's. I began to wade out of the ditch, hearing Monsorbier yelling from the horizon above. He had retired and was at that moment invisible. Ten paces later, another pistol belched at my back, but I ignored it. Lecture! cried my miserable ex-fraternalist. Libertine! Turncoat! You'll not escape your punishment! Pretty soon I heard a scrabbling and confused shouting from the hillside. All the horsemen were cautiously descending. Monsorbier led them. Perhaps after all I was still on French soil? I began to experience a dull expectation of death. I was helpless to evade so many mounted men. However, I maintained my direction and waded on at last onto stonier ground a track which appeared to pass the cottage ahead. I turned to see how far behind me they were. Their horses were tired and encumbered by the deeper drifts, yet it would not be long before I was caught. I drew my tartar scimitar and dropped my saddlebags, running for the shelter of a nearby copse. Then I stopped in fresh apathy. Along the road before me came another detachment of some half a dozen well-equipped horsemen. All had muskets on their shoulders, giving them the appearance of regular soldiery. All well, it was plain then that Monsorbier had driven me into a trap. 